This is episode 242 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Lauren Lee Martin, San Diego Songbird. Hey, listen, Lauren Lee is going to have her release party for Ghost in the Picture tomorrow, which is January 4th at the Belly Up in Solana Beach. So if you enjoy this podcast, listen fast and then dash over to the Belly Up so you can see Lauren Lee perform. And also just a heads up at the end of this episode, I include one of my favorite songs by Lauren Lee called Sweet Michelle. So listen to that also at the end of the show. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm really delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. Lauren Lee Martin is with us. And Lauren wins the prize for the most spectacular microphone of the day. And also <laughs> she wins a prize for the guest who has sent me, I think, probably the shortest bio that I've ever gotten. Oh, nice. Really? I was <laughs> concerned it was too long. <laughs> Not at all. So uh, let me start by introducing her. Lauren is a San Diego singer-songwriter and session singer, as well as one of the most hired performers for cover and tribute bands in the country. She was nominated in 2021 by the San Diego Music Awards for her debut EP, Flair, for Best Pop Album, and her latest single, Trust Fall, won the award in 2022 for Best Pop Song. You can often catch her live with local tribute acts, Pink Freud, and as a guest artist for Back to the Garden. More recently, she's been added to the cast of Six String Society's 27 Club in the role of Janis Joplin and is getting ready to release her sophomore album, ghost in the picture. So welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just want to, I just want to issue one correction. Most hired in the County, not the country. (laughs) Oh, nice. There's a difference. It's okay. I just don't want people to think I've gone national here with cover bands, which I have not yet, but I'm I'm sorry. I totally No, it's okay. For a half second, I was like, maybe I should just leave that in. Yeah, right. Exactly. I'm dreaming big for you. Here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I should mes- mention that Trustfall is on YouTube as well as various other videos in which Lauren covers really interesting songs. And you get to see that way her versatility, which we won't see on this podcast, but she really can channel a whole bunch of different singers. So I encourage you to check her out because it, it's Thank really, you for yeah. That. 
it, it's really your versatility, which you only get to appreciate when you see you do different songs, right? Yes. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. With different projects. I've always got something different going on uh-huh, <laughs> any yeah. day of the week. I don't really know what kind of voice I need to have, you know, <laughs> right? That's the thing. Till yeah. I wake up that morning. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing with the kind of work that you do. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk first about your San Diego roots and you are a real native. Yes. Born and raised. Yeah. Born and raised. And you also come out of the local music scene because of your dad, Claudio Martin, and your aunt, Eve Sellis. I was so surprised to discover that she was your aunt. There's also a really cool video of you on YouTube singing with your dad, which is, uh, yeah, very touching. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about those early influences and how do you think that has affected your musical choices? Sure. Well, you know, growing up, my dad's been a career musician my whole life. You know, he was classically trained in guitar. And so uh, I've had the ear, that that voice in my head, the musical voice in my head um, since before I was born, pretty much. And, you know, he's been a huge, huge influence on my musical tastes and on my musical goals, too, just where, where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. My aunt on my mom's side, so I have it on both sides, is Eve Sellis, and she is a San Diego Music Award Hall of Famer, and she's legendary in the music scene here in San Diego. And I grew up watching her. I would go to all her shows as a little girl. I memorized all her songs. I just idolized her entirely. And then, you know, when it was time for me to be 18 and figure out what I needed to do, I decided to go to college for uh, for other things and not for music because I was told that I needed to have a backup plan. I need to have a plan B in case music didn't work out. And I really leaned into the plan B because I was terrified of music not working out. I saw how hard it was for my dad, how what a struggle it was for my aunt. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to struggle. But... <laughs> You know, eventually my heart brought me back to music, which was about 10 years ago, and I just couldn't deny the pull anymore. And I I had to go for it despite the struggle because it's worth it. And so I did that. But my aunt and my dad have both been highly influential on me in different ways. My aunt is somebody I go to regularly for career advice, how to get to a certain goal that I see for myself, the steps that she took that kind of stuff. And, and honestly, just her, her ideology of how to treat the music business. I've kind of, I try to adopt a lot of it because it can suck you in and make you kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? It can make you kind of cynical, I think. And you can get really tired of it um, really fast. And Eve has always maintained this positivity and joy and love for spreading musical experiences and giving people experiences. And I just kind of, I always try to tap back into that, you know, and my dad, he's always striving to be better. He's always doing something new. And so I kind of feel like I've adopted that from him of just always trying something that's hard and like, that's challenging that might, that might scare me a little bit and just kind of go for it. But it's been wonderful having musical influences on both sides of my family, as far as, as how it's directed my career so far. What what has been your inspiration in music? I mean, you do so many different things. I mean, what inspires you to do what you're doing? Well, that's a tough question because there's a lot of inspiration can kind of come from anywhere, I think. And and Mm -hmm. it can, it can surprise you sometimes where that inspiration comes from and, 
it's not always the same thing. It's really not. I mean, maybe drive where, where, where I find my drive is a very consistent thing. And that would be my son (laughs) and the fact that I'm a mom and I have to provide. And so that kind of puts a fire under my butt to be like, just go and hustle and do and find the next thing and figure it out and make it work. And so my drive kind of is always inspired by the fact that I'm a mom and that I want to take care of my kid and myself. You know, it took a while for me to care about myself just as much as I care about my son. But yes, it's, we have arrived. But um, as far as inspiration goes, like that can come from I could just I could be sitting in the car and driving past, you know, a car wreck and be inspired or something like that. And or I could be broken up with and completely heartbroken. And then that's my inspiration. Or, you know, somebody could just say an off the cuff comment that sounds like a song lyric. And I will want to do that, you know, and, and, and want to explore that and make it a little bit better. So inspiration could really come from anywhere. It could, it's, it could strike you like lightning or it can slowly grow um, over a period of time and become like a, a little passion project. <laughs> yeah. What's the first record you remember buying as a child or kid or a adult whenever you bought your first record? Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> so my first, you can't judge me for this. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we all say. <laughs> so the first record that was ever bought for me, like like when I was a child, like when I was really young, was Ace of Base. <laughs> All I have, uh, all she ever wanted was that, you know, it was really, it was really popular. It was in the nineties. Ace of Base is awesome. I think they're amazing. They have cool harmonies. Um, I was really, I just really loved them a lot, but the first album that I ever bought with my own money (laughs) is almost worse. (laughs) But I don't care because I was a child and you, when you're a child, you don't really know what you're doing, but it was Hanson. And I loved Hanson. I loved those three little boys. And at the time they were little, you know, now they're much older with tons of children and, but they're very talented musician brothers. And, you know, they did that song Mbop and it was very popular and I was obsessed and had them all over my walls and Hanson. I was the first thing I bought with my own money, my, my money that was given to me, you know, for chores or whatever, and that I saved up to go buy that. But I think that the, the first album that I really dug into and was obsessed with to the point where like I couldn't stop listening to it and it became a very influential record as far as for me and my own music making would be Court and Spark by Joni Mitchell. I knew it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it would be Joni Mitchell. (laughs) Yes. My my father introduced me to Joni Mitchell when I was very young, probably like nine or ten and when I became a, t- when I started going through puberty, for some reason, Joni is what I latched on to. She has very honest lyrics, very honest emotions, very uh, kind of a free writing lyrical style that I could grasp onto as a teenager and find. She's just such a good songwriter that even me as a 12 year old was like, I get this. <laughs> like, I can relate to this. <laughs> and her complex, you know like life story. It doesn't make any sense that a 12 year old would relate to that, but I absolutely did. And I feel like a lot of people feel that way with Joni. So um, I latched onto Joni real hard, real early, and it became a lifelong obsession. Yeah. When I saw that you had covered some Joni Mitchell songs, they were a little bit different than some of the other songs you've done. And especially 
when you said something that I listened to over and over. That's mm-hmm. the thing that I think is interesting about Joni Mitchell is you really can listen to her over and over. There's yes. so much going on in her music yep. and singing her is extremely hard. It can yeah. be. Yeah. Depends yeah. on what song you're singing, but she's got a range. She had, a, she had this insane range where she could in one song, she'd just be, she'd be all the way down here and then, and then go all the way up there, you know, just like in mm-hmm. within a, a blink of an eye. And so it was, it's very entertaining for the ear, you know, mm-hmm. for somebody whose mind just is constantly working. It kept me listening. Yeah, it really stands up to multiple listenings because of the complexity of what she's doing. It's unpredictable. That's yes. what I, you know, a lot of songs you listen to a few times and you kind of just have a feeling. Her, I know. <laughs> you have no idea where she's going in bar 12. You don't. Like, okay. <laughs> you have no idea. And that's, it's so exciting for me. And I love that as a songwriter to not really know where it's going to go next. Where's it going to go? I don't know. Yeah. And am I going to hear that again? And if not, I'm going to replay this song so that I can hear mm-hmm. that part again. So I can that hear really that cool. part again. Yeah. 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 It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so switching gears on you here a little bit, I saw in an interview that you said that the pandemic had helped you really strip away things that weren't important and focus on things that were priorities in your life. Yeah. And so I was curious to hear more about that. Yeah. The pandemic really did a number on all of us, didn't it? I feel like the the phrase pain is the cornerstone of all growth, right? That really um, applies here in that everything I loved was stripped from me in 2020. It felt like it anyway. Uh, my relationship ended. My son's mental health was the worst it had ever been. My job was taken away from me. I wasn't able to work. I wasn't able to play music for people. And I hadn't played an instrument at that time. So I couldn't even really play with myself, you know, like just play by myself. And so I couldn't see my family. I couldn't see my friends. It was like being in a sensory deprivation chamber, but like you're forced, (laughs) you're forced in there. And so everything I used as coping skills to live life uh, was taken away from me is what it felt like. And I had to figure out how to survive. Um, because it really was a matter of survival for me. My mental health is, has always been a journey for me too. I've suffered with depression and anxiety my whole life. And so that year was especially challenging to see, okay, how healthy have we gotten? Let's find out. It's a test. It's a test. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it got kind of scary for a while. It really did for myself. And so when I say like, I really put things in perspective, it absolutely did because I had to reprioritize everything. What is the most important? Well, the most important is my mental health. Mm -hmm. Cause if I'm not here and if I'm not okay, I cannot be there for my son. I cannot find opportunities to work. I won't be able to work with people because people won't want to work with me. You know, that kind of, it's, it's a snowball effect and it starts with me. And so I kind of made a decision during the pandemic and that's not to say I've stuck to this the whole time, but uh, you know, since we've been able to work again, but I kind of made a decision not to do anything I didn't want to do Oh, just because I had to make money you know, or just because I had to pay bills or, you know, so I, cause I was really pushing myself to the limits of what I could do, not only physically, because my voice was, was really, really fatigued, you know, by the time we all took a break, it was insane. I couldn't even recognize my voice anymore. I'd listen to recordings and be like, Oh my God, 
gosh, like this woman, what that is not even me, but my voice was incredibly fatigued and I was always physically tired. I could never do any, when I had a little bit of time off, all I was doing was sleeping, wasn't really spending any quality time with my kid anyways. It was just very, I, when I look back at what I was putting myself through just to survive, like financially, I I just realized, Hey, that's not worth it. (laughs) That is not worth it. And we're okay. We're going to be okay. Like we have a great support system. You always know how to make money. Money is the most replaceable thing in the world, but you are not. Um, There is only one you. So I really took a look at when things start opening up again of like, do I actually want to do this gig? Why do I want to do this gig? how is it going to further me in my career or in my own personal growth? And, you know, I take a look at those things and I don't do it with everything. I mean, I did this month has been, (laughs) I've put a lot of my calendar this month, but I do look at every gig that I've taken this month as an opportunity to grow and to get better at what I'm doing. And so I I started picking up guitar Mm -hmm. when the pandemic shut down and Mm -hmm. And so I've been playing for almost for like two years now, but I've been only been playing publicly for maybe like a year and a half. And I've really pushed myself to try to grow. And so every gig I do that I can take my guitar to, I take it to, even if all I can do is strum a few chords along with whoever's playing with me, you know, at least I've got that time in the stage time, because as I've realized over the last 10 years, like you know, active stage hours really add up. You learn a lot. You figure things Mm. out. It's very much a throw you into the fire kind of situation Mm. of like, just figure it out on the gig. Like you just figure it out. So I've been challenging myself in that way for the last year and a half to try to just get better at guitar. So most of the gigs I'm taking that I wouldn't normally want to take because of mental health reasons, I'm doing it for a purpose. Like I have to look at my purpose for taking these gigs now. I set a minimum limit for what I get hired for. You know, I don't do anything less than $150 an hour. Like that is my very minimum of what I will accept, except for session work. And even in session work, I have like, you know, I do $75 an hour, which is very reasonable, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I do a two hour minimum. Right. So it's like, it still ends up being 150 and worth my time. So like, I just make sure that I'm valuing myself. I'm valuing my craft. I'm valuing my time. That's really what the pandemic has done for me because I just didn't do that. I said yes to everything, regardless of what it was. I just wanted to get out there and be seen and be heard, but it wasn't always great. And there were times when I was on gigs having panic attacks because I didn't, I didn't want to be there. I was having a panic attack in between sets, just freaking like, what, where is this coming from? And I figured out where it was coming from. I was like, I am pushing myself to do stuff. I don't want to do that. Doesn't make me happy. It doesn't bring me joy and it doesn't serve a purpose. So yeah, having to really adjust my, my thinking on that has really helped me a lot. Wow. That sounds like a a lot to go through. And I understand depression and anxiety because I've also suffered my, my life pretty much. And yeah, it can be really tough on and you and the people around you. Absolutely. Yeah. It can, it can definitely bring people down. (laughs) That's like the biggest thing that we were like, one of the biggest things I worry about when I'm having a depressive episode or I'm going, you know, I have high anxiety is how am I affecting the people around me? I'm making it, I'm making the situation even worse, you know? And so I tend to pull away. I don't want to inconvenience your life with my misery. So let me, (laughs) this misery doesn't love company. I don't want to be around you because I don't want to 
you to catch it from me, you know, that kind of feeling, or I don't want to give you the opportunity to tell me that I'm bringing you down. So I just pull myself away. So there's very, there's a lot of that that goes on with me and depression and anxiety, which, so that's usually the first red flag that I need to start doing something differently is if I start pulling away from friends and family, I need to take a look at what's going on. I had a cousin who one time said to me, it's been a long time ago, but these words still ring in my head. She said, you know, when you're going through a bad period in your life and later people find out about it, they say, oh, you should have called me, right? You should have gotten in touch. You should have gotten in contact. And she said, it's not good advice because what are you going to talk to those people about when you call them? You know, Mm -hmm. that my life is a wreck, that this is happening to me, that I'm having this issue. She said, you know, I'm not going to put that on somebody else. And I thought, well, that's so obvious. And yet we all go around saying, you know, the same thing. Oh, you should get. Yeah. (laughs) Call me when things are hard. And it's, you know, I do have friends. I have, I have one. Well, I have a couple friends that I know that if I call them, and tell them exactly that. Hey, my life's in shambles. I cannot think straight. I can't make good decisions for myself right now. You know, help. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know that they'll be there and they'll be there with constructive answers and constructive help. And I trust that, but I don't trust that there's a lot of, a majority of the people that are my good, good friends. I still wouldn't go to because I don't feel like they would have the constructive solution or answer for me of like what to do next. Well, they don't, they don't understand. They don't yeah. understand what it is. And there was a right. commercial on TV in the last year where the people were helping the, this kid to feel better and they're going, well, just smile more or just do this. You have yeah. to get out there. And by those don't help because those are the things that are we're trying. Yeah. They see that the problem with that. So I wrote a song with Veronica may recently She's awesome. I love Veronica so much. And she's one of those friends I know I can call. You know, she's very open about her own mental health journey too. And it's been very helpful for me. And we wrote a song recently and I don't remember what we're calling it, but it's exactly that theme of like people telling you, well, have you tried drinking water? Have you tried going outside? (laughs) Have you tried exercising yet? You know, have you taken your meds today? You know, and all the things that are just like, like I, and then the chorus is I've been trying all goddamn day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sorry if that, for cursing, but that's the chorus. And it's just a scream back of like, I'm trying, like I am trying, I'm really trying. And the fact that people think that we aren't trying makes it a lot harder. If you don't actively see me outside drinking water, power walking, <laughs> you know, it's like, do you know how hard it is to even get out of bed and brush your teeth? Like it's impossible. Like getting up and exercise. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Like that is, it's impossible. There is a literal wall in my brain that tells me I can't do it. You know? And so you do need help. You need help, but asking for it is sometimes the hardest thing to figure out how to do. And so it's very important to have at least one person in your life that you can say, Hey, things are not going well. Like warning sign alert, red flags. Hey, help me out. And I'm lucky that I have that. I was so intrigued to see that you'd worked as a drug and alcohol counselor, and I can imagine how effective you were at that work. Oh, thanks. Um, You know, it's something that Bill and I have talked about before, too. It's so distressing to me how embedded drugs and alcohol abuse is in the music industry, affecting certainly very publicly musicians, but perhaps others in the music industry as well. 
Oh, Can yeah, you definitely. enlighten us a little bit about what is going on there? Why those things are so entwined? I think generally, I'm going to speak in very general terms, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a professional anymore. And I'm sure, you know, I haven't, I haven't worked in the field in 10 years, <laughs> I think, but generally speaking with musicians and artists in general, we tend to feel everything a little bit more. We tend to feel a little, everything a little bit more. We're in the public eye. People look at us all the time. We need to perform, which is an emotional experience in itself. Mm. I know for me, performing is an emotional exchange. So if you are the type of person that can feel that emotional exchange to another level, you know, that we're maybe just um, a person who's, who doesn't create for a living or create in general, it can be too much. It can be way too much. It can be overwhelming, you know, almost to like an autistic level. You know, I look at my son who's on the spectrum and he is highly emotional and highly sensitive. And that is because he feels everything to the nth degree. He and he has to take some time to process those things. And sometimes it can turn into rage, you know, which is a scary thing. And I think for everybody, we have different levels of that, of how how intense is the emotional process for you in creating music, in exposing yourself to the public, in being vulnerable with friends and people where you that you're creating with. And so oftentimes when that gets too much, we find out that alcohol and drugs can make those things a lot easier to process. Mm -hmm. And it can go from being very easy to process to not processing it at all. And then it can go to physical addiction to these things, which is where, where there's a problem. That is where there's a, a problem and a risk of death. And where we see that with a lot of overdoses and people in and out of rehabs or just people just having a problem in general. I always used to describe addiction and alcoholism as, as like a, if you were struggling trying to figure out if you did it or didn't have a problem is if it's a problem, then it's a problem. If it's causing problems, then it's a problem. So you have to look, is it causing problems in different areas of my life, in my relationships, financially, uh, in my career, in my friendships, if it's causing problems, then it is a problem that you need to address. Whether or not it's to the level of alcoholism or addiction is irrelevant. It doesn't really matter if it's causing a problem and you want that problem to stop and you can see that alcohol and drugs are directly related to that, then let's work on stopping that. So I worked really, really hard in that industry for a very long time and it burnt me out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it burnt me out because it is a, it, I, my hat is off to all my old coworkers and everybody who still works counseling because it is a drain on you. And if you don't know how to compartmentalize and be able to leave work at work and then come home, then you won't last in that industry. Most people only last about three years. I did it for eight years and I burnt out. I was so burnt out. I just, it was not fair to my clients and to myself anymore. I just needed to step out. And that was around the same time where I was just really hyper-focused on music anyways. And I really just wanted to go for it. And so I did. When I think about all the friends that I've lost to overdoses and to alcoholism, family included, it, it is heartbreaking. It is very, very heartbreaking, but I understand it on a very visceral level. Um, and I, and I get it because I feel everything all the time <laughs> and sometimes it's too much. Sometimes it's overwhelming. And there's sometimes that I wish I could just not feel that. 
and I understand it, but that doesn't make it any less sad. I think there's a lot of, of self-medication that goes on in a lot of people um, yeah. you're in, in, the, in the music industry. That's exactly what it is. It's self-medication. And for some people, it is what keeps them from killing themselves. You know what I mean? It saves them. So yeah, it, it's, it's not the best coping choice, but for some people, it's what saves them until they can get either to rehab or to a 12-step program or whatever works for them in order to make a break away from that. And if they make it successful, then they get caught in the other loop of touring, which is touring is tough. Staying up late, <laughs> yeah. you have to stay up late and you have to get up early. Touring and both those rough. things, both, yes. both those things take people to take medication that helps you go to sleep yeah. and get up. And that just yes. adds to the problem too. I've only been on one seriously uh, intense tour like that for, for a month straight, but it was, I, oh boy. Yeah, it was rough. Like the lifestyle is not for everyone. And after I went on that tour, I really, I looked at a bunch of YouTube videos and trying to figure out like, how do people actually tour and stay healthy? Like, what do they do? What do they do? What are the habits that they're doing? What do they do? And I looked and I was just like, man, I wish I had a do over so I could do this all over again because <laughs> I had very little time to prep for this tour. And so I didn't I didn't really get to do a whole lot of that. I was more focused on getting the music right than figuring out how to deal with being on tour. And I should have done a little bit of research on that. So that's a little tip for anybody getting ready to go on tour. <laughs> Do a little research on how to make your daily life a little bit healthier on tour because you can absolutely get sucked into all of the staying out really late and drive, you know, getting used to sleeping on the road and eating like crap and drinking and there, there will be drugs. <laughs> so you got to figure out how you're going to handle those situations. Yeah, I really coach my corporate clients who get into a job where they travel a lot to be very conscious about those things, just back to basics, hydration, physical exercise when you're sleeping. What I have observed, yeah, you go into it not knowing that you get in trouble fast, you know, gaining weight, yeah, all kinds of problems. All things. Mental health declines as well. Absolutely. And then you got to realize that when you come back, from something like that, there is a period of mental health adjustment that is needed. Like you need to take time, whether or not you're dealing with jet lag is one thing, but then you're also dealing with, Hey, everything was moving at 88 miles per hour the whole time. And then now you are moving at a snail's pace. You are moving at two miles per hour. So there's whiplash involved of just like, how do I live this life again? And Um, whether you're gone for three weeks or three months, like the reality is still the same. Everyone has, it's like post-show blues, but more intense. And if you know what post-show blues is, is like after you do a show, that's really just a lot of stimulation, a lot of people, or it went really well, or there's just, you know, a lot in your face and it's very loud. And then you come home and then like you just crash and not like go to sleep. I mean, emotionally, you were like, completely drained. And so it can lead to bouts of depression if you don't know how to regulate yourself after a show. So uh, not knowing how to regulate yourself after a tour can be difficult. Yeah. For a lot of people, it was difficult for me. I had, it was really hard for me. Like I needed another month after the month I was gone to kind of get back and feel like myself again. We interviewed Jeff Berkeley last month and heard about all these projects he's working on. It's unbelievable. He's so busy. I know. It's It's like he's really good at his job or something. (laughs) Or something. Yeah. (laughs) He is a super busy person. Oh, he's he's a a wonderful 
a producer and, and human being in general because he really cares about people. He does. Did, did, did you learn anything that excited you when you were working with him? You know, Jeff Berkeley has always been in and out of my, like he's been in my life on the peripheral for eight years, but longer than that. But because he's worked with, with Eve for so long, he's always been on the peripheral. So he, you know, Berkeley Heart Sell is Twang was a thing. Mm -hmm. Good album. Yes. Very Mm -hmm. good album. Such a good album. Their harmonies are just so beautiful. And if you know anything about me, I'm just obsessed with harmonies. I love that kind of stuff. And so I've always been inspired by Jeff, even when I didn't know Jeff, he's provided a lot of opportunities for me with session work and with other things. So I've had the opportunity over the last eight years to really, but definitely more over the last year and a half, I would say we've gotten even closer, man. The thing that excites me about Jeff is that not only does he have a great ear, like you said, he cares he cares a lot and he makes you feel like he cares, which is important because I know that there's people who care, but they don't really necessarily make you feel like they care or like they don't use proper words or direct eye contact and like, you know, and saying things that show you that they're actually really invested in your project. Like they really actually are invested and they want you to do well. And that's something that I've learned from Jeff and that whole, I would say, graduating class of, you know, his music year, you know what I mean? Like the, (laughs) the year that he grew up with the people he grew up with, like in the music industry, like, like my aunt, like Jason Mraz, like Jewel, all of them kind of have this ideology of wanting to see each other succeed. And I love that. And I have definitely adopted that in my own choices of who I am around. You know what I mean? Of who I've chosen as my musical family is we all really want to see each other succeed. We really encourage each other's projects. We want to be involved in all of them. You know, I think maybe it's too much. (laughs) I think we're all too much involved in everybody's project. It's become very uh, whose band is which now? Cause we're all in the same band, but it's definitely something that I've picked up from that generation of, of musical influences, especially in San Diego. And Jeff is just, his spirit is so big and his generosity knows no bounds. And he is just a lovely human. And I just, I'm so excited. And he's, he's co-produced my album. Um, and I recorded all my vocals in his studio and he's done a great job mixing. It's done. It is perfect. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) I just love Jeff. He's great. Yeah. I was thinking, You know, in a way, the music community in San Diego is so reflective of, in my opinion, the city in general. There's Uh just a very open, laid back, tolerant, easygoing, positive culture that we have here. Agreed. It's not like any other music city. It's not. And I've, I've, I've been to pretty much every music city with the exception of New York. I haven't spent much time in New York, but um. But we can uh, guess. <laughs> right. You can guess. But with the yeah, with, but I feel like San Diego is an exception. I, I don't feel like it has all of the like the ruthless cutthroat competition that happens in L.A. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of clickiness that happens in Nashville. Mm-hmm. A lot of clickiness in Austin. Competition in Austin is also pretty fierce. And in Nashville, I mean, it's just everyone's just trying to make it. It is a little bit nicer in Nashville, but it's still a competition. You know, everybody's judging everybody. Nobody's, you know, it's very clicky and it's hard to get into those clicks. And I really, really feel like San Diego is different in that way. And hopefully that's not a privilege take just because I've been welcomed into the community so 
nice or just so the community has been really welcoming of me. They really, really have. And so I'm really hoping that's not a privilege take of me thinking like just because I've had it kind of easy, I guess, getting into the different, the various communities that happen here in San Diego music wise. But I really can feel the difference. I can feel the difference. Everyone really wants to see everybody succeed and to help each other out. When we, when we talked to Jeff, we talked a little bit about his experience with the Java Joe's scene. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of that really started there with, with all that going on because that was like a family that was developed from the coffee house. And yes. It it really brought people together so much. And everyone we, you talked about there is pretty much came from that environment. Mm-hmm. There is a, a huge need for an environment like that again, because you know, the open mic, well, Java Joe's is gone, right? And then what kind of took over that was the open mic about Lestat. And so when they lost Lestat's, just we haven't really had anything to kind of replace that, except there is something that I've noticed and that is growing and getting more, more and more popular and building a community. And there is this regular open mic at Park and Rec. Oh. And it's on Monday nights. You can sign up just like and do, a, you know, they do a raffle pick just like they used to do it with stats. And they have featured artists every Monday, too, that come in and, and do their sets. And then around that is the open mic. And so it's actually really, really cool. And the people that show up are can be incredible from incredible to absolute newbies. Right. But it's a community and it's starting again and I can see it and it's beautiful. And uh, I'm really impressed with Ben Moore, who is the person that's kind of spearheaded that. And he's just, he's, he's really made a consorted effort to try to build community in that way in the music scene in San Diego. And I, I love it. (laughs) I love to see it. I love to see that it's still happening. And it is, I think it's just a testament to the city. I think you're absolutely right, Jennifer. I think it's just, this is, it's just, it brings it out in you. So we talked a little bit about uh, how versatile you are and you've done such an incredible variety of singing. And again, I just want to mention to my audience, you should really go on YouTube and check out some of these videos so you get to see all the different things that Lauren can do, the different kind of singing that she can do. And you talked also about pushing yourself outside your comfort zone, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because they sort of go together, right? As you're kind of knocking off this kind of singing and now I'm going to do country and I'll do Janice Joplin and all that. (laughs) So I was really curious if you think that's just how you're built, right? Like just, I don't know, part of your DNA or something. You know, I don't, I don't think that's how I'm built. Okay. So like my, (laughs) I am built, I am an anxious little girl. That's who I am. I am highly anxious and highly worried all the time. I worry constantly. Okay. So that's not how I'm built, but there's always one project I have going on that scares the crap out of me. And then what I've noticed is that I'll do it. And then I will have this new skill. Like I will know how to do this thing now and it won't be so scary anymore. You know, it's just like learning anything. You just kind of have to just do it and figure it out. But, you know, there is a a period of being terrified that leads up to any time I'm doing something new. I think my favorite example is when I got picked to be on the Pink Floyd Experience tour, singing Great Gig in the Sky. And I could not believe that I won that audition um, because I didn't think that my audition tape was good enough. (laughs) So for the sake of our audience, 
please tell them what that is. Yeah. It's a little mind blowing. Right. So, so I'll just tell the story. My aunt calls me and says, Hey, there's an audition opportunity for you. They wanted me to try out for it, but I don't want to do it. They want me to sing great gig in the sky, which is, it's arguably the most difficult female rock vocal. I think in history, it's very hard to sing. It's, it's a, it's a lot of wailing. There's no actual lyrics. It's painful to listen to in a way that is visceral and it makes you feel a lot of things. And it's a lot of screaming. <laughs> like it feels almost like she's screaming along to this Pink Floyd track. So it's, it's an emotional song. Anyway, I, without even listening to it, she's like, you'd get to go on tour and open for foreigner. So you should audition. And I was like, oh yeah. Okay. I'll audition. Without even listening to Great Gig, knew about Great Gig because I had listened to Dark Side of the Moon forever, like since I was a little girl and I knew about it, but I was like, oh, I bet you I could do it. You know, if Eve's if Eve's thinking of doing it, then, you know, if they asked Eve to do it, I can I could do it because we have similar voices. Right. And similar ranges. So I was like, oh, I could totally do that. And then I get off the phone with her and I listen to Great Gig and I'm like, what? did I do? What did I just commit? <laughs> what did I just thought? Oh my gosh. And the audition needed to get in ASAP, right? Oh. Like within a couple of days, like that's all I had. Oh. So what I did was the next morning I booked some studio time with a friend to record videotape me singing great gig in the sky. And I stayed up until about four in the morning, learning it. It's really long, right? It is. It's a four, four minute and 25 second song. So yeah, it's pretty long, but it's also, um, yeah, I couldn't learn it in one night. There's no way I could learn it in one night. So I figured, okay, I'll just get it to a point where they could tell that I can do the things that are required of me of the song. And then, you know, I'll have a little bit of time to work on it. If I get the gig to make sure that it sounds good by the time we're on tour. So I stayed up all night, just trying to like watching different I did so much homework. I watched a bunch of different people singing it. I watched, uh, you know, obviously I listened to the original over and over and over again. I tried to chart it out. I tried to figure out how I could get this just to a place where it was acceptable. And and then I went into the studio uh, the next day, recorded my audition, sent it, didn't hear anything for three weeks. (laughs) I was like, I thought this needed to get in right now, but but it took a while for them to get back to me. And then they were like, okay, it's you. And I, from that point on, I was terrified, just absolutely. Like there was one night where I was so nervous. I was almost throwing up just like, like hunched over the bathroom, just being like, I can't even think straight because of how anxious and scared I was to have gotten the gig (laughs) and uh, to have to sing that song. And cause I already knew all the backing vocals and everything. I knew Pink Floyd really well, but great gig. I did not know. And, um, I had three months to get ready. I used every inch of that three months to learn it note for note. I didn't actually unlock a part of my voice to make it sound really good until I was halfway through on tour. Oh, so like I was singing in my head voice for the first two weeks to hit these notes. I was singing it note for note, but it wasn't the passion and the screaming kind of mixed voice that you want to hear. And then one night I just, I had gotten off the phone with my therapist and she said, go jump in the pool and get rid of all this weird anxiety off of you. It was in Canada in the middle of winter. (laughs) It was cold. (laughs) It was very cold, but it was a shock to my system. And for some reason it just gave me the strength and the 
courage to just go for it that night to just really, cause I was terrified of cracking or mm-hmm. being embarrassed in front of these large crowds, biggest crowds I'd ever sung before in front of before, but I just went for, it. I said, what, what, what's the worst that could happen? I sing, it, it cracks a little bit. You recover. It's okay. And so I just went for it and I hit and I utilized this part of my voice that I use every day now. Like mm. I use it every day now. I, I can't believe I went so long without utilizing this part of my voice, without strengthening it and without trying it out because I think I hated the way that the tone was, mm. but I, I've learned to love it and be able to use it now. And so that was like the biggest example of doing something that scared me that showed me like, Hey, even if you fail, or even if you don't do it to perfection, you're still going to learn something. You're going to come out of there a better artist. You're going to come out there knowing more stuff about yourself and your own craft and your voice that you didn't know before. So I just try always to take, if, if something is, if somebody is offering me a gig and my first reaction is no, that's scary then I will usually say yes. <laughs> that's, that's a terrible screening device. It is. It is. It is. But they've led to just these incredible experiences. Sure. You know, not just that. I've had just a handful of incredible experiences because I say yes to things that are scary because other people see something and hear something that I can't hear. Like I'm too close to it, you know, and then and I'm always critique. I'm more about my own worst critic. I'm always listening and going, Oh no, 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 that's not good enough. And then there's, but that's somebody else's like, wow. Oh my God, that was great. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? But okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I, I can't uh, hear myself. I can't hear myself the way other people hear me. So I can't judge what they think is good. I can't ever judge what other people think is good or what they think is bad because I'm not them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's kind of a good, that's, that's the way that I like to challenge myself is if somebody offers something to me and they're like, and my first reaction is like, oh, I'm not ready for that. I say yes, because I can be ready for that. I mean, unless I really don't have time to be ready for something, you know, like if somebody offered me, like an opera gig in three days, I'd be like, no, (laughs) that takes, that takes decades of technique to figure out, but no, but thank you. You know, but there's definitely things that I will take now that I wasn't taking earlier in my career just because I was scared. Yeah. I actually really love that. I think there's a big, you know, kind of takeaway that we can learn from that. And that is when you're open-minded to feedback. Yeah, it can really lead you some interesting places because you've really taken yourself, your own perspective out of that, out of that screening. Yes. Say, well, I'm going to rely on somebody else's judgment of what I'm capable of, which and is hard to do. It's hard to do, but I yeah. think it would allow us to be more expansive in our dreams and accomplishments. Definitely. Another example of that is is with my guitar playing is that uh-huh. I just, I am so I'm, I was very self-conscious of my guitar playing. I still am to a point, but you know, my partner for many years, Sam Hunt, who was my music partner for many, many years before he moved to Nashville, he is always pushing me like with guitar, just like when I first started out, he would be like, bring it to every gig. I don't even care. Like, and then he'd be like, you're playing this song. And I'd be like, no. And he's like, yeah, you are. And then he just shout the chords to me, like while I'm singing, (laughs) you know, just to kind of force me into it. He'd be like, I'd be like, I can't play that. There's, there's a bar chord in there. And he's like, just do it, just, just do it. And you know, I'd mess up, 
but then, okay, I have the experience of messing up, you know? So I just, it's important to have people around you, like you said, who they have a different experience of your talent and they have a different knowledge of what they think you're capable of. And sometimes you just have to trust that and just, and, and just go for it. Yeah. I was so impressed with the version that you and Sam put on YouTube of the cover of blinding lights. Oh, thank you. And it's, we did that during the pandemic too. We we weren't together. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to watch the two of you be separate. Um, but Mm -hmm. it's a really excellent cover. In my opinion, it's better than the original. It's just the, the power of a vocalist and a guitarist, but it's really interesting that he pushed you because he's such an accomplished guitarist himself. So to have someone like that, you know, encourage you is. Yeah. He's phenomenal. And, you know, I've known Sam since we were teenagers. Um, My dad was his music teacher in high school. So he's been around for a long time, um, but we didn't really start working together until about 10 years ago. So he, he would come and and sit in with my dad's band and I'd see him every now and then, you know, before that. He had like really long hair. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny when you've known people a long time. (laughs) No, it was adorable. Um, But yeah, he's, he's my best, he's probably my best friend right now, even though he lives in Nashville, you Mm -hmm. know, we've been through so much together and he's like a brother to me, like in every sense of the word, we're each other's ride or die friend. I'm always there for him. He's actually playing with my aunt now out in Nashville. Oh, isn't that cool? Yeah. Full circle. I just think that's the coolest thing. And he's, he, he's, he's got the talent though. Like he's, he's so good and that's exactly where he should be. Well, you've done so many different types of styles and music. What's on your wish list? What, what do you, what would you really want to do if if you could pick? That's, That's a great question. So yeah, I've been able to do a lot of different things. Um, most of those opportunities afforded to me by other by tribute bands and cover bands that, that want to hire me as far as my own music goes and like things that I would want to try just like for my own development is I definitely would, would like to get into jazz more and jazz mm-hmm. singing. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had a whole, I've had opportunities to, to do jazz gigs, but my knowledge of, of jazz standards is very limited. And so it would be a lot of homework for me, which is just basically the only thing holding me back from that is just doing homework because I love singing jazz and I love, I know that that style lends itself very well to my voice. I feel like if I really leaned into it, I could be, it would be really fun. (laughs) I think it'd be really, really fun. Um, So that's definitely on my wish wish list is to to get more jazz in my life. I think for sure. I I can see you doing some scat singing or something. I love scatting. I do. I love scatting. I've done it. uh, I did it on a gig with Jeff Berkeley recently. (laughs) It was so funny because, you know, his music, you don't think jazz when you think Jeff Berkeley, you don't think uh, scatting. But it happened on a gig with him recently where everyone was taking a turn, you know, soloing during one of the things. And he's like, all right, Lauren, give us a scat solo. And I was like, okay. And I did it. And it was super fun. I love scatting. Like there's just, I can, the skills that are there for me to be able to do it. It's just the opportunities are not always presenting themselves to where I have the time to prepare for it. Definitely, definitely would love to do that. Yeah. And tell us about the new album. Oh, yes. Okay. So my new album, Ghost in the Picture, is going to be coming out in the next couple of months. Um, We're actually looking at releasing a single here in the next couple of weeks because my album is finished. My songs Mm -hmm. are done. It's beautiful. I cannot wait to share everything. I'm waiting for some album art and some other things before I release 
the album, but um, it'll be all over my Facebook, my Instagram, my everywhere, my website. When I do actually have a release date, it'll be published. Everyone will know who wants to know. I'm very, very excited about it. Uh, my first single that's going to be coming out is called Foul Play. Mm. The The title, Ghost in the Pictures, and the first line of that song. Mm. So it's a, it's a very meaningful song, and I feel like it kind of encapsulates the, the weird relationship I had during the pandemic. And um, I'm just, I'm really proud of it. It's probably my most favorite song I've ever written. Mm-hmm. And I just can't wait for people to hear it. I showed my album to my mom the other day and she was crying all the way through it. There's a <laughs> lot of themes of loss in this album. So the that's the biggest theme that runs through it is just it's loss. And, you know, I wrote a song for my best friend that died in 2020. Mm-hmm. I wrote a song for my long term relationship that died. I wrote a song for uh, my pandemic relationship that really messed me up. And I wrote a lullaby for my kid when he was in the hospital. There's just so many really, really meaningful songs on this album that I just can't wait for people to to listen to it. My dad's on the album too. He plays oh, guitar nice. on, on a track and I'm just, I'm so proud of it. I'm more proud. I It's like a little baby and I can't wait to <laughs> deliver it. <laughs> yeah, that's really lovely. Thank, Thank you. you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I can't believe how fast this hour has just flown by. I when know I it has flown clock, by really I was fast. shocked. <laughs> Before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience where they can uh, find out more about you or any upcoming shows or really anything you want them to know? Sure. My website is always updated with my latest shows. Um, My website is laurenleemusic.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-N-L-E-I-G-H music.com. And you can always find out where I'm going to be there. I also try to post um, where my next three gigs are going to be on my Instagram bio all the time. So if you follow me on Instagram, that's low key Lauren Lee, mm. and you can find me there. And on Facebook, I'm Lauren Lee Martin, and you could find me there. And I try to post pretty regularly on there too. Yeah. I mean, from all, all those places you can find everywhere I am everywhere else, like YouTube and all Twitter and all the other things, if you're interested in that stuff. So um, that's where you can find me. And hopefully I will see some of you at some shows and uh, we'll just have this great new budding friendship and relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds lovely. Yeah. And thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you, Bill, for coming on the show. I neglected to introduce you at the beginning of the show and suddenly remembered part way through. So I feel terrible for that. But thank no, you so no, it's much. Good. Thank you so much for coming on the show, both of you. I appreciate nice it. Nice to meet you both. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.
white jacket, your mountain of rings. You probably decided I'm not worth your time. I remember I watched you drink coffee with cream. Your ruby red lips don't need sugar. I wasn't paying attention to all the right things I just knew how you made me feel Sweet, sweet Michelle, I didn't know you as well as I should have You made other plans You wore your white jacket The rings on your hands I guess you decided I'm not worth your time God is a woman An angel's her friend I'd meet you in heaven and I'd try again I'd pay attention to all the right things I'd tell you how you made me feel Sweet, sweet Michelle